Rocket God is a game developed by Bolt Creative in which the player manipulates an island and its inhabitants. It was originally released for the iPad and iPhone and iPod back on January 9th of 2009. The player takes the role of an omnipotent being who rules over an island and controls everything. The primitive islanders, also known as pygmies, are subject to the player's god powers. These range from benevolent powers like giving the inhabitants fishing rods to destructive ones like summoning a hurricane to wipe people out. That description was given by uh, Wikipedia on their site. But I did some other research and discovered that there have been more than 40 updates to the game since 2009. There are other ways that a player who plays the role of God can punish the pygmies, like burning them with lava from a volcano. And then some of them run into the water to escape the burns and they end up drowning. Or sending lightning to electrocute the pygmies or having sharks eat them. I really think our biblical character, Jonah, would have really enjoyed playing pocket God. Here in chapter 4, it looks as if he wants to be in charge instead of the real God. The focus is all on him, on himself, not on God, not on the Ninevite people that God has graciously spared. This morning we're going to see three ways in which Jonah is self-focused. And I believe that God's going to teach us how vital it is to let him be God and to see ourselves the way God sees us. And my prayer is that we'll recognize God's right to rule in His universe and more specifically in your life and mine. So first of all, we're going to see Jonah's self-focus in his solutions to some unpleasant developments. If you're wondering what, if I'm maybe stretching it a bit to say that Jonah was all focused on himself here in chapter 4, all you need to do is read verses 2 and 3 with me. Verse 2 says, Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that Thou art a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. I was emphasizing that you probably noticed all those personal pronouns about Jonah. He mentions God four times, either by the word thou or the title Lord. But he mentions himself with those personal pronouns eight times. He's focused on himself here, not on God. And besides that, our chapter begins in verse 1 with Jonah being angry at God. Notice it. Verse 1, it greatly displeased Jonah. What did? What made him angry? Verse 1. Well, verse 10 of the previous chapter. When God saw their deeds, the people of Nineveh, and that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which He had declared He would bring upon them, and He did not do it. 
Those last five words of chapter 3 really irritated Jonah. He did not do it. He did not do it. Jonah wanted God to destroy the people of Nineveh. Man, woman, and child. He hated these people. They had been the enemy, the nemesis of Israel for decades. Besides that, they were a murderous people. Brutal. Idol worshippers. And Jonah, playing his version of pocket god, felt that they deserved to be wiped off the map. So what was his solution? Once he realized they'd been spared for at least a short time, we'll look at verse 5. Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until, it's a key word there, until he could see what would happen in the city. Let me translate that for you. It's not that difficult. It means that Jonah set up shop on a hillside outside this great metropolis and he just was waiting there for God to zap them. Waiting there for those 40 days that he had been preaching about to finish. Waiting there to see the hammer of God's justice fall hard on the people of Nineveh. God's solution to their now-I-get-it kind of repentance was grace. God's gift, free gift of love poured out on them instead of punishment. Jonah's solution was as soon as they take even one step back to the way they used to be, (laughs) then God's going to get them. God's going to zap them. I'm convinced that's what Jonah was hoping for and even praying for. And so his solution was to comfort himself in a shelter from the Middle Eastern heat. But that was only part of the solution. The solution would be complete when the Ninevites were crushed by God like Jonah knew they should be. It appears from verse 3 that if Jonah doesn't get his way, he wants to die. Look at verse 3 with me. Therefore now, Lord, please take my life from me. I just want to die. If this isn't going to happen the way I think it should, God, then just kill me. Just to end my life. He preferred that to allowing the people of Nineveh to live and be in tune with God by faith. And I think far too often we start to tell God what to do, like Jonah did. We don't understand why God doesn't do things our way. Because our way is good, we think. We don't understand. We question why God doesn't see things like we see them. The trouble we have, like Jonah had, is that we don't see the problem the same way God sees the problem, and therefore our solution is not the same as His solution. Let me give you an illustration. For more than 20 years... Professor Edwin Keedy of the University of Pennsylvania Law School would start his first class each semester putting two figures on the blackboard, the number four and the number two. And then he would say to the class, and I'm going to ask you, what's the solution to these numbers? Anybody? 
Okay. <laughs> exactly. That's the whole point. Some of his students would say, well, it's the answer's two, as in four minus two. Some would say it's eight, four times two. Or it's six, four plus two. And he would say to them, every time you failed to ask the key question, what is the problem? Is it addition or subtraction or multiplication or division? You failed to ask the key question. Unless you know what the problem is, he would say to them, you can't possibly come up with an answer. So in this instance, my question about Jonah is, what is the real problem? The real problem is not that the people of Nineveh responded in repentance toward God. The real problem is not that God spared their lives. He relented of the calamity that He said He would send on them. The real problem is Jonah. The real problem is Jonah's personal view that only Israelites can have a right relationship with God. That's what he believed. And he wasn't the only one, but he's the focus here in chapter 4 at this point. Only self-righteous Hebrew people could possibly deserve God's love. These Assyrians don't. They should have been wiped out by God. Jonah could not imagine that Israel's God could also be Nineveh's God. He didn't like that idea. The bottom line problem was that he either never heard or forgot what God said about why he chose the Jews to be his special people. Do you know why? Let me share with you what God said. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Those of you taking notes, write this passage down. It's an important one. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. God is speaking to the people of Israel, and He says this, You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set His love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any of the people, for you were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you that's all he chose the nation of Israel to be his special possession his treasure just because he loved them and that's why he saves you that's why he saves me because he loves us Jonah forgot that or had never understood it so having a wrong or a prideful grasp of being God's chosen people put Jonah on the wrong side of this solution. And sadly, some professing Christians live with an air of superiority over our lost neighbors and friends. We think of ourselves as pretty special. And we're certainly much better than they are. We don't do the things they do. So of course God loves us. Jonah's superiority also transformed him into an emotional basket case. Upset over some of the most unimportant details. Totally missing out on the wonderful things that God wanted to accomplish in the city of Nineveh. So let's secondly look at Jonah's self-focus as it's seen in these emotions that he expresses. Emotions about unimportant details. 
His emotional roller coaster starts with anger in verse 1. Again, it greatly displeased Jonah. What did? The repentance of the Ninevites and God sparing them. He became angry. He can't believe that God isn't going to destroy these godless, immoral people. And make no mistake, the Assyrian people, the people of Nineveh, were awful people according to history. They did some brutal, gross things to their enemies and their captor, the people they captured. But we're all sinners, right? Everyone in this room, everyone in this town, everyone in this country, everyone on planet Earth, outside of the perfect sinless Son of God, the Lord Jesus, we're all sinners. Romans 3.23 can't be more emphatic. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And as one of my teachers in Bible school used to say very plainly, all means all, and that's all all means. All have sinned. That's what the Bible says. In his anger... Jonah feels that these people have fallen way short of God's glory. He only fell a little bit. That's his thinking. But they've fallen way short. And he feels he has the right to argue with God and point out what he had already told God, at least in his heart of hearts, if not out loud. Namely, that he expected his wishes, Jonah's wishes, to be honored in the total annihilation of these foreigners. Notice his prayer in verse 2. Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, forestall what? The repentance. In order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. He's angry. Jonah somehow feels he can pray while being angry at God. I want to ask a question this morning. Is it ever okay to be angry? Yes, it is sometimes. We call that righteous anger. Jesus Himself expressed that kind of righteous anger. For example, when He threw the money changers out of the temple with a whip and said to them in Matthew 21, verse 13, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. He was angry. So yes, sometimes it is right to be angry. But far too often, for us mere mortals at least, anger gets the worst of us. And it doesn't honor God or promote His glory, like Jesus' anger on that day. It only leads to sinful responses and poor solutions and wrong emotions about things that really aren't that important. Benjamin Franklin said this, I love this quote, Anger is never without a reason, but seldom with a good one. (laughs) We rarely ever have a good reason to be mad, especially at God. Jonah doesn't get angry in a sinful way just once in our text. After he begs God for uh, to end his life as if he just can't take it anymore, God specifically says to him, notice verse 4, Do you have good reason to be angry? 
God asked Jonah that. Do you have a good reason to be angry at me? And Jonah is so livid about what happened here that he doesn't even respond to God's question. He thinks he has the right to say, I'm not telling you. But I think down in his heart, he knew this God knows everything. So he knows I'm angry and why I'm angry. He's so focused on himself and on what he thought should happen. Now, notice the mood swing in verse 6. The Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was, notice, extremely happy about the plant. Think of that. One minute he's furious with God because God set these people free from sin, saved a whole nation of several hundred thousand people. And now he's giddy with laughter about this plant that's providing him shade from the sweltering heat while he's sitting in his lawn chair in his temporary shelter outside the city while he's waiting for the 40 days to end and see them crushed. Unbelievable. In verse 7, God appoints a worm to attack the plant. And the plant withers up and dies. And then God turns up the heat, literally and figuratively. And Jonah feels faint. And in verse 8, he's again at the point of absolute despair and he wants his life to end so that he doesn't have to suffer from heat exhaustion anymore. This time when God asks him in verse 9, why are you angry? Do you have a good reason to be angry? This time he does respond. And this is my paraphrase. His response is, well, of course I do. Of course I have a reason to be angry. The point of this quick survey of Jonah's wild emotions is to remind us that apart from walking with God in fellowship every day and spending time in His Word and in prayer, we have that same tendency to let our emotions rule us and to feel sometimes that God has been unfair to us in some way. We've all been there at one point or another. Gloria and I had a marvelous lesson given to us early in our ministry as pastor and wife. We were serving a little church in Tuscola, Michigan. And one of the elderly women who attended that church, Mrs. Mina Palmer, now gone to be with the Lord, she was a sweet woman. We went to visit her in her home and found out that In a seven-year period of time, she lost her husband and all of her children to various strange illnesses and accidents. The people of the church told us she didn't. But the people of the church told us that during that seven-year period, she never once missed coming to church. Not once. She wasn't blaming God. She wasn't angry with God. She understood God has a purpose in this and God can comfort me. What a great attitude. We were blessed to know her. But we get very off track in our emotions sometimes. 
Satan can very easily fill our minds with wrong concepts about God. James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 says, Let everyone be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. It doesn't accomplish anything positive when we just let go and get mad. So Ephesians 4.26 commands us, Be angry and do not sin. There are times when we can be angry without sinning, as in righteous anger. But it says then, Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. If you get angry, deal with it. Confess to the Lord, this is a wrong kind of anger. This is out of place. God, I'm sorry that I got angry at you. But we do get off track sometimes when especially we become the focus instead of God. And so then when things go wrong, at least as we think it, when things don't benefit us, we turn against God in one way or another sometimes accusing Him of not loving us like we think He should. So let's look at a third way that Jonah's self-focus becomes obvious. And that's through his conceptions, his ideas, his views about unparalleled deity, about the nature of God. I want to submit to you this morning that knowing things about God is not the same as knowing God personally. Jonah claimed that he knew some things about God. Look at verse 2. I knew, he says in the end of verse 2, that thou art a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. But for Jonah, knowing those wonderful truths did not change his attitude or his actions. It didn't change him. If he really believed that God was so gracious and compassionate and merciful as he claims, then he would have known God has been merciful to me. God's been gracious to me. God spared my life just days ago by allowing that great fish to swallow me up instead of drowning in the depths of the Mediterranean. God's been so good to me. And if he really believed that, he would have jumped at the chance to go to Nineveh and tell them about the grace of God. But obviously that didn't happen. Jonah clearly says in verse 2, this is my again my paraphrase, I knew you would be kind to them. And to try to put this whole revival thing off until you saw things my way, God, I took off for Tarshish. Because of his nationalism, his racism, his religious bigotry, he did not want to focus on God's grace and compassion. He wanted God to pour out vengeance on these idolaters. Jonah, you see, knew some wonderful truths about God. But there were some things he forgot about God as well. Specifically, he forgot that God is the focus of the events in this book. The very book he, Jonah, wrote sometime after he went through these experiences. He forgot, for example, that God called him. That God called him to preach to Nineveh. Not once, but twice. 
He forgot that God saw to it that he was the one who was singled out by casting of lots as the one who was the cause of a great storm, a storm that God hurled on the sea. He forgot that too. He forgot that God, when He finally did go to Nineveh, told Him what to preach. God gave Him the message. He forgot that God appointed that great fish to swallow Him and keep Him alive. He forgot that God made a shade tree to come up and provide some comfort for Him while He sat out there in His tent. He forgot that God appointed a little worm to eat away at the roots of that plant and cause it to wither and die. And he forgot that God appointed an even more intense scorcher of a heat to cause him to come back to God, drive him back to God, and instead it drove him to despair even of life. Here's my point. God is in total control of everything in our lives. Whether we want to admit that or see that or not, He's in total control. And He is so because He loves us. He wants the best for us. But more importantly, most importantly, He wants the glory that comes through us as we yield obediently to Him. But the problem is, for too many people today, Satan has them believing the opposite things about God. That He's brutal, unbending, harsh, critical, unyielding. He's a cosmic killjoy. He doesn't want us to be happy. Oh, happiness has got to be one of the most misunderstood words in our language and culture today. Everybody wants to be happy. And we think that happiness comes from entertainment, having lots of money, sexual pleasures. The list could go on and on. We're not much focused, unfortunately, on rich spiritual joy that only God can give. Often we're focused on the wrong things that we think will bring us happiness. We forget that God offers us so much more than the world could possibly offer us. Listen to these powerful words from Colossians 1, beginning at verse 10. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His own beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now I ask you, is that some reason to be filled with joy? God is so good to us. He produces joy in us if we let Him. But the whole plot of the devil is to get us thinking all the wrong concepts about God. He wants to lie to us about the true nature of this sovereign God, creator, sustainer, wonder of all. That plan of His to lead us in the wrong direction, the wrong concepts, the wrong views of God was hatched way back in the beginning. 
In fact, it started when he himself rebelled against God. Satan wanted to be a pocket God. You can read about that in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. One of the things you'll read in Isaiah 14 is that he five different times said to God, I will do this and that. I will ultimately take God's place. And God expelled him from heaven along with many other angels who then became demons down here on planet earth. But what happened in the Garden of Eden? This now expelled Lucifer, Satan, took the form of a serpent and said to Adam and Eve, especially to Eve, that what God had told her could not possibly be true. In fact, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, the devil asks Eve, Did God really say you should not eat from any tree of the garden? He's questioning God's authority in her presence. Eve then specifies, if you remember the story, she specifies which tree God said you shall not eat. And she specifies the warning that God gave. If you eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And so Satan next says to her in Genesis 3, very emphatically, you surely will not die. And then he questions the motive of God. He claimed that God's motive was to keep her from having her eyes opened and becoming just like God. And ever since then, mankind has had the wrong concepts, the wrong views of God, especially that God is all into punishing people and keeping them under His weighty thumb. Some professing Christians and far more non-Christians have a wrong image or view of God and it affects the way they live it's almost as if they see on every wire fence in their neighborhood a sign that reads not beware of dog but beware of God but they fail to fully understand and appreciate passages like Isaiah 40 verses 9 to 11 Listen to these beautiful words. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might and with His arm ruling for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arms, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom, and he will gently lead those who are with young. If you ask me, that doesn't sound like a pocket God. That sounds like an all-powerful, sovereign ruler of the universe who loves his sheep. Who's a good Shepherd. Despite Jonah's view that he was anything but a wandering sheep, the Bible tells us in Isaiah 53 and verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one of us to his own way. And even though Jonah truly felt that God wasted his time on these wandering Assyrian sheep, the verse doesn't end 
where I stopped just a moment ago. Isaiah 53 verse 6 goes on to say, And the Lord has laid on Him, referring to Jesus, God's own Son, the iniquity of us all. That's the nature of God. He is this all-powerful God. But He's a God who loves us, who cares about His sheep, who wants His sheep to be in fellowship with Him, and who made that possible through sending His own Son to this earth to die on a cross for us. So the proper concept of God, the proper view of God, is that He created us for His own glory. He loves us because He is by nature love. And that love wasn't just mere words. It was displayed publicly and once and for all and forever on the cross. When Jesus, God's own Son, poured out His blood, divine blood that alone can save and wash away all sin. I'll repeat what I said at the very beginning of this year and of this series on this Old Testament book. Jonah illustrates to us the folly of walking our own way and the sweet joy, joy, not happiness, joy, of walking with God in 2015. The very fact that the Good Shepherd wants us to walk side by side with Him in fellowship with Him is proof enough that God is not out to get us. He's out to give to us eternal life. And that's a huge difference. Jesus, God's only Son, said this about His role as the Good Shepherd. John chapter 10, verse 11 and following. I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. I am the Good Shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. I lay down my life for the sheep. And then these beautiful words that Jonah needed to hear because they apply to the people of Nineveh and to you and me today 2,700 years later Jesus said other sheep I have which are not of this fold them also I must bring and they shall hear my voice and shall become one flock with one shepherd I want you to know today if you don't already that you can be in that flock And you can have the Good Shepherd's arms around you, holding you close. How? By putting your faith, your trust fully in what Jesus accomplished on the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Receive His free gift of eternal life today. Don't wait. I want to pray with you right now before I close this message. If you know you need Jesus as Savior, if you'll pray a prayer like this, God's not focused on the words. It's not we have some formula we have to say. But if you'll pray a prayer like this, God will save your soul. And the Good Shepherd will make you part of His fold. Would you bow with me as I pray? Pray something like this. God, I know I'm a sinner. But I do get it that you created me for your own glory I get it that you love me you love me so much you sent your son Jesus to die on a cross for me 
and rise again and offer me the gift of eternal life. And His shed blood paid for all of my sins. And I'm so thankful that I want to give my life to Jesus today. And just tell Him that in prayer. Now if you'll look up just for a moment to me once more, I want to focus on those who are already in the fold. I want you to know today that if you're already in the sheepfold, you need to praise Him. Praise Him because He's done wonderful things for you. Praise Him because He's given you the opportunity to have a joy-filled daily walk with Him. Praise Him because of who He is. Praise Him because of what He's done for you. Praising God was not high on Jonah's to-do list. He was too focused on himself. So let's learn a lesson from him. By the way, in fairness to Jonah, let me close with this. Jonah wrote this book sometime after his experiences on the ship and in the sea and in the city. I don't know how long after, but sometime after. He wrote this all down. And to his credit, he was very honest about himself. Isn't that great how the Bible is like that? doesn't sugarcoat anything. It tells us exactly what these men and women were like. None of them were perfect except the Lord Jesus. And Jonah was far from perfect. But he wrote this down so that we can have a record today of what happens when we go our own way. For whatever reasons. Whatever our motivation. So I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that we have the book of Jonah. But let's learn a lesson from Him and turn our focus rightfully to where it belongs. To God. To His Son, Jesus Christ. And to the Holy Spirit who lives inside every true believer. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, writes this, An idol is whatever you look at and say, If I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. And he concludes with this. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something. But one of those ways is worship. And that's why we're here this morning. To worship Him from the heart. As a way of saying thank you for being our Good Shepherd. I want to invite you to stand with me as we sing a closing song called The Heart of Worship. And you'll notice on the screen that I've underlined all the words that relate to God. So let's get the focus off ourselves and sing with this closing song. It's all about you, Jesus. Let's sing it together. stripped away and I simply come longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart I'll bring you more than 
a song for a song in itself is not what you have required you search much deeper within through the way things appear you're looking into my heart I'm coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you it's all about you Jesus I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it when it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. This isn't just a good song for Jonah. (laughs) It's a good song for you and me, too. King of endless worth No one could express How much you deserve Though I'm weak and poor All I have is yours Every single breath I'll bring you more than a song For a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it, when it's all about you, all about you, Jesus. I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within Through the way things appear You're looking into my heart I'm coming back to the heart of worship And it's all about you It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it when it's all about you, all about you, Jesus. I'm coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it when it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. Lord, may we live our lives each day confident that it's all about you and not us. 
We'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful week. We look forward to seeing you next Sunday for communion and dinner and our annual meeting. God bless you.